being programmed to chill a show about business crime parapolitics and esoterica with your host jimmy fallon gong all right we are joined here today by trash you may recall may recall trash from the episode on the novel the kindly ones trash or big boy no oh fuck <laughs> big biden boy boy biden with big a, boy Thank you. Yeah, uh, no worries. That's him on Twitter. You can see. Um, Chicago how, people will know. They'll they'll get it. How are you doing today, Trash? I'm doing all right. You know, um, pretty chill time at the bike shop. Uh, just you know, it's getting cold up here in the Upper Midwest. Uh, so you know, <laughs> nice to settle in with a uh, you know a heartwarming film. <laughs> yeah. No, it's funny because my wife, she's always making fun of all the different people I interact with and their fanciful jobs. Like bike shop is like fairly grounded, but like I'm always telling her, yeah, so-and-so who works in this. And it always sounds like some Richard Scary job or something. <laughs> <laughs> bike shop. That's fun. Yeah. 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 It's fun. You know, after being a, a wasting my time as a bike messenger for 10 years, it's, you know, now I'm just getting fat and, uh, fixing rich people's bikes so it works out yeah <laughs> very much in the theme of this movie which is <laughs> having to serve rich people <laughs> yes yeah exactly it turns out my people's uh we our, our lot in life doesn't really change too much but yeah, anyways <laughs> yeah. yes let's see here so we are here today to talk about the winds that shakes the barley which was a film that came out in 2006, directed by Ken Loesch. You think that's how you say it, Loesch? Uh, Loesch, yeah, that's how I've always pronounced it in my head. Yeah, and it stars Killian Murphy. One of his more uh, earlier roles, right? I mean, yeah, this is this is a pre Peaky Blinders. That's right. Yeah, so, and then I think also, I mean, I feel like uh, 28 Days Later either came out right around this time or was, yeah. Yeah, 28 Days Later, something like 2003, then he was in like Batman and so forth. Okay. Oh, yeah, that's right. Yeah. But this was not a Hollywood movie. (laughs) No, no, it was not. (laughs) I kind of remember when this came out, but I did not see it when it came out. Did you? No, I mean, I would have, I was, uh, I would have been 16 at the time. Um, I saw it a few years later, like right when Netflix came out um, as like a big deal when I was like 19 or 20. And uh, yeah, I was, I, I think I, I remember seeing it because I watched Battle of Algiers and mm. uh, like, that was like my favorite movie when I was 20. And then it like, it came up as like a recommended film. And I was like, Oh, shit, I'm, I'm Mick Catholic, I should probably watch this. And, <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of parallels, I think, to the Battle of Algiers and the wind that shakes the barley. That's interesting. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, famously, um, uh, from what I understand, uh, was that the IRA uh, in the 70s used to use Battle of Algiers as like a training film, or like inspiration to like, wage their insurrectionary warfare and i could be totally wrong could just be like a rumor but like that's what i've been telling people at parties for a long time now so well you know what's interesting is that they (laughs) also film it at like the pentagon 
and uh like fort benning i think has done filmings of it and they they film what the the pentagon is or uh sorry they uh they also show it like the u.s government like oh or, yeah, I yeah, say yeah the no, military yeah yeah yeah, to, yeah for counterinsurgency so mm-hmm. yeah absolutely just like the uh you know the the bourgeois don't read marks yeah right like <laughs> wink <laughs> yep <laughs> exactly and i did want to say before we get into because i trash and i we both hit the books for this episode because we didn't want to come unprepared i don't know about you trash i won't speak for you but for me you know i want to be humble right like this is serious and important history and i am only somewhat irish american <laughs> i'm not gonna list out my blood quantum but uh <laughs> <laughs> you want to bust out the calipers roughly a quarter irish is what i would say yeah yeah i mean this this stuff uh at least from my background i'm about three quarters irish and um i guess yeah not that this is like a qualifying uh (laughs) thing or whatever but Mm -hmm. like just my own background growing up who i am like uh you know my mom's side of the family my grandparents are from ireland um they came over uh during this or you know their parents came over during this period uh you know at the after the war of independence the civil war because of all the you know bad shit that was happening um due to the uh the treaty the free state treaty um and uh so i don't know it's but it's also like like this stuff is sort of talked about in irish families but also like all irish catholic families like nothing's really talked about that mm-hmm. serious it's just it's sweeping under the rug just bury the boy just pretend everything's fine just keep going so you know it's like yeah and then you know i'll, I'll have uh certain uncles that will have uh, pretensions to uh ira connections and we know that they're full of shit it's like <laughs> you know but you just want to sound cool but whatever but <laughs> exactly yeah. exactly no it's funny because like you know, I have one grandparent who was all Irish, right? And, you know, their family came over from the economic stagnation following the Irish independence. Mm-hmm. Similar, probably. Ugh. Dave Valera's uh, fucking theocracy, he basically ran in the country, which was a bad time for a mm-hmm. lot of people. A lot of women, mainly. <laughs> yeah. You know. As, and that's a theme we're going to see throughout, I think, this whole movie is things always seem to hit women worse (laughs) oh yeah which then you know will (laughs) maybe lead to the archetype of the irish catholic martyr mother um Mm -hmm. which i know and love but you know just like my own mom but anyways uh (laughs) sorry (laughs) no i did want to say because of course this is serious history and like i said i have only kind of a tenuous connection to it but on the flip side, I also wanted to give a full-throated endorsement to the idea that, like, to the idea that, like, for me, okay, trash. You probably know this. I know you probably have some smart and dumb friends. Okay, do you have any <laughs> buddies who like Sons of Anarchy? Uh, I I definitely did back in my earlier twenties. Yeah, I had a I had a homie who was just yeah way into it got me to watch like a couple of seasons back in the day but yeah and you know most people into sons of anarchy have little to nothing 
to do with the actual outlaw biker community. No, yes, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that is how I feel. I kind of feel like movies about the Irish Republican Army are my sons of anarchy. <laughs> In that I have very little to do with that real struggle, which is serious. But god damn if I don't love it and I watch it every chance I get. Any IRA movie that I can get my hands on is like my favorite. Oh, absolutely. No, yeah. I remember, you know, seeing this movie as a young 20-year-old kid who is, you know, introduced to it by a battle of Algiers and was just like you know, just like a young and at the time very anarchist, uh, like mm-hmm. cartoonist, the kind of like you know, like just you guys don't even know it's it's fucking it's going on and it's my people and blah 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 blah, and like yeah. just annoying as hell probably, and very uh, <laughs> um, you know, allergic to to female attention probably from that <laughs> it's, it's didn't go over well. <laughs> now I did want to say we may or may not be doing something like a Hibernian film club, right? Exploring some other movies relating to these things, right? Yeah, like more lighthearted fare, like Hunger. (laughs) (laughs) Hunger is like my favorite freaking movie, I swear. Oh, absolutely. It's it's the best IRA movie made. I I mean, but, you know, honestly, like maybe something lighter, like The Commitments or something would be good. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. No, exactly. Even possibly like shitty films like 50 dead men walking like i hate that movie but like Mm, i haven't seen it myself it's 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 rough um (laughs) but so it goes without saying you know i don't think like i'm not going to pretend to be objective like i am pro irish pro republican you know pro unified ireland and so forth and uh you know Obviously, there's still a lot, like a world of gray and nuance there, which like, Mm -hmm. I'm not just going to be shouting up the raw every five minutes, (laughs) even though I basically do feel that way, right? Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, it's a extremely complicated history. And I remember when you were messaging me about this like a few weeks ago, it's just like, yeah, yeah. How do we do a thing about the troubles? It's like, well, it's just such a nuanced history it's just it's so dense and complicated like it it could be uh it's in i mean and it should be if maybe at some point like its entire own like podcast like just Mm -hmm. going into what the fuck happened all the back and forth anti-treaty ira pro-treaty ira provisional you know like all this shit like it just it's um and, and and what it boils down to though and you know the heart of it and and what the film shows I, I feel like is you know it's it's neighbors killing neighbors it's brothers killing brothers it's uh it's an extremely heartbreaking conflict like it's these are people who live right next to each other and it's the family gets tied up into it you know um it's it's just uh it's messy it's extremely messy so so we landed on just like well let's just watch a movie that's <laughs> exactly the easiest in <laughs> And like, what? Well, so I'll get to the history thing I wrote in a second. But like, what I love about this film, like you said, is that like it really issues a simple narrative. Like, I don't know, like trash. Like, ver- I, like I don't know any like films about the independence of a country that are so black billed as this. 
but like true to life because that's how it freaking was you know oh yeah no i mean it's very much you know irish gallows humor you know kind of thing or like you know that same where that same kind of sentiment like comes from i feel like culturally at least like you know from my experience with like my family and stuff is is just kind of this overarching like pessimism about things and and i think a lot of that stems you know from ireland in the 20th century and um you know it's like something i took a note of but it was just like you know what is the effect of you know centuries of subjugation um Mm -hmm. being effectively like britain's first colonial holding like you know just what how does that affect like a cultural character like family dynamics and stuff and yeah this is not like a uh like rah rah like we did it like we 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 liberated ourselves it's like it's it's much darker than that (laughs) yeah it's amazing Uh okay so i'm going to do something that i typically dislike doing okay I am going to try to summarize roughly 1,500 years of history in order to lay the groundwork to talk about a movie. (laughs) Let's fucking go. (laughs) So I have read a lot of things about this conflict in general, but the outline of what I'm going to talk about today, specifically right now, comes largely from the work of Tim Pat Coogan and his book, The Troubles, Ireland's Ordeal and the Search for Peace, which itself has an even more unenviable task of getting people caught up all the way up to the Troubles. (laughs) And that's when his book starts. So (laughs) I'm basically taking like information from his introduction, right? And I thought he did an exceptionally good job. So like, check that book out, obviously, if you're interested. But for our purposes, we only need to get to the Irish War of Independence, which is the topic of the movie The Wind That Shakes the Barley, or as some call it, the Anglo-Irish War. (laughs) (laughs) Let's go. (laughs) You can guess who calls it that. Okay. So, poor Ireland, so far from God, so close to England. (laughs) That's, you know, that phrase they say about Mexico and the United States. But I think that it works for Ireland. Absolutely. Let's see here. So Coogan starts his history talking about St. Patrick, who arrived in Ireland in the year 432 AD. Coogan emphasizes that abbeys in Ireland had a lot of power and influence, and that they were actually very, almost like they had like an outsized influence in Roman Catholic, I guess, you know, it wasn't the term yet, but like essentially like Roman Catholic history in general. At certain points, the abbeys in Ireland were more powerful than those that you would see in mainland Europe, like relative to the other countries. Irish monks traveled all over Europe. They converted, you know, a lot of the population over many generations. Some people might know something about Irish monks transcribing old texts, you know, saving manuscripts, works of antic works of antiquity and so forth. There's even that book, I don't know if you saw this one trash, but it was like how the Irish saved civilization. 
Oh God, yeah. I had a buddy in high school uh, whose mom had that in a book shelf, and it always kind of interested me. But I never, I was like, "What the fuck did we do?" I, I don't know. But... Yeah, I'm sure it's histrionic, but you know, there's some truth to it for sure. Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, <laughs> Ireland, of course, was also subject to frequent attacks. Uh, the Vikings, first and foremost, right. So the Irish would finally break the power of the Vikings in 1014 at the Battle of Clontarf. <laughs> it's a beautiful Gaelic name. I don't know why you're laughing. This is wonderful. I have I have like <laughs> less than no ear for Gaelic. I, I don't know how to say any of it. It's a <laughs> bloody travesty. Neither do I. I mean, yeah, I know I know like a word or two, maybe, but it's mm -hmm. you know, it's a it's a very guttural uh language. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, did you ever hear that theory that the uh, the hobbits were supposed to be Irish? I just always assumed that, like uh, reading Tolkien as a kid, um, you know, and I would like read about the Shire and stuff. And like, you know, my grandma would always like share pictures of like Ireland with me and stuff and tell me about it. And like, you know, we had like picture books in my grandma's house when I was a kid. And I was just like, oh, it's like the Shire. Shire's like Ireland. Okay. Like, yeah, the hobbits are Irish. Okay. I do feel like there's something to that. Like they're kind of coded that way. Yeah, you know, simple, simple hill people, <laughs> little, <laughs> little hill folk. You know, simple-minded. They just want to be left alone. Yeah. Yeah, but they're yeah. <laughs> I mean, honestly, yeah. <laughs> be nice. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so the first serious Norman penetrations of Ireland began in 1160 which is a starting point for 800 years of British oppression. That's a frequent phrase, right? 800 years of British oppression. Yes. Yep. Although now it's ticking up, right? I think it might be more. Yeah, we're, we're, we're approaching, if we're, we haven't hit 900 yet, it's quickly approaching. So. Yeah. yeah. So Coogan points out a very, very interesting, very telling fact. The term, the Irish Troubles, was already in usage and 300 years old as a term by the time Columbus sailed to America. How freaking nuts is that? Yeah, I mean, that's kind of one of the interesting, you know, like the way like Bloody Sunday crops up again and again for a mm -hmm. number of different atrocities. It's, uh, the, you know, the British perpetrated, yeah, perpetrated upon the Irish people. Um, yeah, the troubles crops up again and again. Yeah, yeah, you know it's rough yeah. when you have to be like, wait, which bloody Sunday? Yeah, right. <laughs> and then, of course, there's Bono taking a huge shit and just channel jamming the term as well. That fucking guy. <laughs> Joshua Tree is a great album, though. Not gonna lie. But, you know, everything else. Shit. Yeah. <laughs> Did you see that clip on Twitter recently where he was playing in San Francisco? This was more when they were a more popular band. And, like... Someone was holding up like U2 plus SF and he flipped out because he thought it was Sinn Fein. Oh, God, no. <laughs> they're in San Francisco and he's just like, when's the last time you've been in Ireland, fucker? <laughs> it just, yeah, it comes out real quick. Whatever uh, posh, uh, you know, Western affect affectations you may have taken on the, uh, you know, <laughs> whatever side you're on, like Fiona Fail or whatever. It, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Let's see here. So a note about cultural differences between England and Ireland back in the day. So Gaelic culture, I guess, was oriented around cattle rearing more than tillage and agriculture. 
which was what England was into, which is really interesting, right? Because like you associate today like cattle with like bigger people and like you think maybe like Texans or like Mongols or something. You know, you think that like cattle, you think that would be the dominant culture. But like on the flip side, if you really are spending most of your resources like growing grain, you can just field more armies and support a larger population or something. Mm -hmm. It's just interesting. It's also easier to, you know, maybe it's easier to ship across the channel Mm -hmm. than cattle is. Keeps longer, you can feed and like... Yeah, uh, especially before like freezing and so forth mm-hmm. yeah it's just some interesting like guns germs and steel bullshit yeah yeah <laughs> i guess the uh normans and the english i I'll, I'll be honest i'm not a medieval ancient history guy so like when it's normans when it's anglo-saxons when it's english like i'm not super up on that but like they basically as a people they got heavy cavalry sooner than the Irish did. Mm-hmm. So, consequently, English heavy cavalry was going against light Irish infantry. And, you know, that's not a good combination. You know, that's another reason why Ireland tended to keep losing these conflicts. Coogan pointed out that Ireland lay way too close to England to have full independence but too far away to be completely conquered as with Wales and Scotland. <laughs> he actually compared it. He called Ireland a green Cuba to put it in like modern American <laughs> understanding, which I think is like fitting in some ways. Oh yeah. I mean, yeah. Yeah. You know, I don't know. People may be a little uncomfortable with, I don't know. Then you get into the whole messy thing of like, you know, uh, Irish people are white, but like, you know, they're <laughs> the subjugated colonized people within Europe. So how do you, how do you look at it? You know, and listen, and Trash, guess... it's our job right now to litigate that question. <laughs> all right. I'm, I'm here for it. You know, let's go. <laughs> <laughs> um, so in 1155, <laughs> this is so freaking old. <laughs> <laughs> Jesus. Yeah. No. Yeah. That's like where my notes start. Uh, so <laughs> props to you for going back that far. <laughs> and to be fair, this is like, you know, this is still very oh, sweeping, right? We're, we're just blowing over important stuff. But oh, yeah. in 1155, Pope Adrian IV, who was an Englishman, by the way, this pope granted Ireland to Henry II in a papal bull. That was not just out of nowhere. That was in a complicated context where English kings were already intervening in the affairs of Irish kings. Not to be like (laughs) doing an Irish black Israelite thing and being like, we were kings. So some of the time, this intervention by the English was invited, as with a guy named Diamurid MacMurchada, who is the king of Leinster. Who invited King Henry II to to come across, you know, and uh, intervene in Ireland. And some people point to Mac Merchada, they point to him as being responsible in some degree for the 800 years of British oppression. Tim Pat Coogan points out, however, that Irish kings in this time were not notably 
less psychopathic than English kings, and they were just as guilty of the same exact behavior. So Mac Merchada is notable for instigating English intervention. He was not like uniquely perfidious in any other way, which is interesting. I don't know, uh, Trash, if you've ever heard of La Malinche. No, name's not familiar. So when the conquistadors came over to Mexico, right, with Cortes and so forth, La Malinche was like this Nahuatl woman who, or Nahua woman who basically acted as an interpreter for Cortes and like, I guess, became like his mistress and people hold her up as like a disloyal person because she aided in like the conquest of Mexico, basically. Mm -hmm. And so like, I feel like in some ways people kind of point to this particular Irish King in some, in similar ways, but like history is too complicated. It's not as simple as like, this is the bastard that brought the English over. Yeah. I mean, you know, a lot of this stuff, it's like, it's, it's not like he did it out of malice towards like his own people and uh, culture of like, mm -hmm. I just, I hate myself. And so I'm going to bring in these guys who are so much cool and better. It's like, there's, you know, um, to go to, you know, that one fellow Marx is like, there's probably a material incentive uh, for his like immediate needs of his, you know, locality. It's a lot mm -hmm. of times, a lot of this stuff has to be viewed through that lens of like, you know, this person was making the best of like a shit situation and looking out for those closest to him. Of course, I could be wrong too, but you know, I don't know, maybe having like a charitable view of some of these things so far in the past is a little beneficial to a degree. Exactly. Or at least, you know, realizing that it's too, it's not like a pat story, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, from that point, there ensued a long series of different battles and wars against the English, and the Irish typically always lost whenever it was like a set battle, and they fared somewhat better anytime it was something closer to guerrilla warfare, which is a dynamic that you will see throughout all of Irish history. <laughs> yep. <laughs> the Irish don't appear to be a particularly they don't see like you know me i don't really believe in like national characters in some ways i think a lot of that stuff is made up bullshit and or like fake cover for race science or something but like on the flip side you can't deny that like the italians are bad at war <laughs> the irish perhaps bad at war but again maybe that's for materialist reasons rather than like national character right well, yeah, bad at maybe like open war as practiced by the technologically advanced uh, nations. But then, you know, the flip side, they get really good at insurgency. Mm -hmm. You know, exactly. And we'll get to that, too. So with the English Reformation, <laughs> can't even handle doing this. OK, with the English Reformation and King James the first. Yes, the, that King James of the Bible. Mm -hmm. If you're a Protestant, that is. Yeah, it's not the actual Bible, so whatever. <laughs> Mormons <laughs> use the King James. What can I say? Hey, you know, it's all good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. As so, I, I got a lot of problems with the Catholic clergy, as we will see going into more of this. <laughs> it's the most Irish thing to be Catholic and also to have issues with the clergy. <laughs> oh, absolutely. 
Well, I mean, for very material reasons. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So King James I, you know, because of the English Reformation and so forth, the the English crown planted six counties in north in a northeastern region of Ireland known as Ulster. They seeded these colonies with English colonists, mainly Scottish Presbyterians and Episcopalians, because England didn't want them. (laughs) They were all on that Church of England stuff. So there are some interesting parallels in history between these plantations in Ireland and the slave plantations off in the Americas. And no, no, I do not mean in the Irish were slaves kind of way. I know. <laughs> I know you're thinking that's it. it. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's the, but, that, see, that's the line we got to dance around here. <laughs> but no, I'm not arguing that. But some of the frameworks, some of the modes of organization were brought over and then they added slavery to it. It was obviously like much more like serfdom when it was in Ireland, mm-hmm. for sure. Not slavery, but some of these although, frameworks were imported into the Americas. Yeah. Although going forward, and, and not to jump ahead, but uh, Marx does note in uh, his pamphlet um, that uh, a number of the Irish were sold into the West Indies as uh, slaves. Um, mm-hmm. Going forward a little bit, but sorry, I'm, I'm probably... I'm, I'm no, no, because... <laughs> no, I mean, it's a good point. Like, <laughs> it's not that there aren't reasons to say that it's just that it's you know the equivalency is a little yeah <laughs> in boston when they throw that out there that's not what they're meaning no yeah absolutely yeah which yeah we'll get to boston yeah no, i'm just kidding <laughs> boston as irish jerusalem <laughs> all right my, my family's new york irish so i i got you know no attachment but no i'm just kidding it's... yeah <laughs> So there were various massacres of Catholics by Protestants all across Europe in the wake of the religious wars of the 1640s. And these massacres were used by Cromwell as justification for his genocide. You know, this gets into the English Civil War as well. You know, there's a whole lot going on at this time, you were saying. Yeah. Which, oh, um, I mean, just, um, which I think Marx notes as um, called the Second Conquest of Ireland, mm-hmm. um, which they used to, um, you know, replant with the, and, and sorry if I'm stepping on your toes here, no, no, Jimmy, no. but um, they used to replant with colonies of, you know, the Puritan uh, English, or at least in Marx's notes, that's what he describes them as, which would then be the Anglo-Irish, um, also known as a Protestant with a horse. Um <laughs> But yeah, I mean, this is essentially, uh, to quote Marx, like a um, a bloodshed, devastation, depopulation of entire counties, removal of their inhabitants to other regions, sale of many Irish into slavery in the West Indies. There's the quote I was looking for. Mm. Um, Yeah. Bad times. (laughs) Yes, bad times indeed. So this is a major point where, you know, things are really happening which continue to affect modern Irish history, right? For sure, by the time we're talking English Civil War, Reconquest of Ireland, the Williamite Wars, as they say, and in particular, and specific to Northern Ireland, the Battle of the Boyne, 
that is a very important mm-hmm. battle for Northern Irish identity among, you know, mainly the Ulster psychopaths. Sorry to yeah, editorialize. They... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, they still have giant bonfires today and, you know, we'll maybe murder a couple of innocent march Catholics. around and do a riot basically yeah yeah you know and you know the cops just let it happen you know it's fine <laughs> it's chill cool it's, it's pride it's a pride <laughs> so okay so the battle of the Boyne. hugan points out that the battle of the Boyne was heavily retconned and propagandized for political purposes ever since and there's this image, right? William of Orange, mounted on a white charger, just sword held aloft, leading Protestant forces to victory. It's an image just too powerful not to use that way. It's politically useful for the Brits and the Orange men. It does not matter that the historical record was too complicated. Like, Kugan points out that, ironically, the papacy was actually on the side of William of Orange during this conflict. Oh, weird. That'll probably never happen again. Anything like that. (laughs) So, like, the idea that it's, like, them defending Protestant, you know, religion is just, like, false. Because it just doesn't correspond with the historical record and so forth. However, William of Orange and his forces, his basically genocidal forces, they enacted Catholic penal laws, which made it nearly impossible for Irish Catholics to own property, to receive an education, or to enter most professions without renouncing their religion. These same penal laws also affected English Catholics, but the diff- and like I think also we're talking like it it affected English Catholics in England. But the difference is that in Ireland the penal laws were applied in a racial way, whereas in England you could just like stop being catholic i mean yeah whatever you know what i mean like it's used in a much different context yeah i mean um you know uh, one of the notes i have down from this period um was that uh um to teach the art well according to marx this is but to teach the catholic religion was a felony um converting a protestant to catholicism an act of treason uh if you're an catholic archbishop and you were caught um you were liable to be hanged disemboweled alive uh afterwards quartered um and uh yeah so you know pretty chill stuff (laughs) normal yeah cool and i mean again i'm editorializing with my own opinion but why have a podcast if you don't do that right I mean, that's the idea, right? <laughs> I have no particular love for the Catholic Church. <laughs> um, but when it comes to Ireland, the sympathy lies with the Catholic population, not the church itself, right? Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, and I myself, um, as an Irish Catholic, have a uh, very Irish Catholic uh, approach to my Catholicism. <laughs> that is very complicated, <laughs> Um, but you know, I don't know. I, I still consider myself Catholic. I obviously, I do not, I don't know. It's, it's complicated. It's like a matter of my upbringing and the way I connect with God and stuff, but I don't obviously condone (laughs) almost anything that Vatican has done, but 
my Irish grandparent was uh, quite similar, is how I would say. <laughs> yeah. In that approach to religion. Mm-hmm. So Coogan relates two anecdotes in talking about this time. So he, so the first anecdote is Coogan speaking with an Irish professor of history. And this professor was describing a recent tour of old English farmhouses. And he told Coogan, you know, I've always thought of myself as an Anglophile, but it came home to me looking at ordinary artifacts. I'm not talking about grand stuff you'd see in castles, but dishes, knives, forks, jugs, plates, things like things like that have survived from as far back as the 16th century. How little of that sort of thing exists in Ireland. And the reason. Just when a people would be getting a little prosperity, every 50 years or so there would be some new devastation and they'd be pounded back into the slime. Yeah. And it's just interesting, right? Like, not like you can see it in like the his in like archaeology, basically. I mean, that's that's um, wild going back to that because I mean, like getting up to the period where Marx and Engels were writing, you know, they not to get too, but you know, like essentially, um, Irish industrial development was uh, subjugated like very, very intentionally by mm. the English. Like Irish industry was not allowed to grow whatsoever, and it it would it would go in fits and spurts, but then like you know like the stuff like the corn laws would get instituted, and you know these you know what would have been the natural like capitalist development of Ireland was very intentionally like halted just to you know relegate Ireland um, essentially to an agricultural district of England as Marx would uh, call it. So yeah. Exactly. And like a market for English manufacturing to dump their goods. But like, Mm -hmm. you know, that is essentially an exploitative, you know, relationship and all the tricks that they did to India. Well, you know, many of them they did to Ireland and vice versa. And there was like a symbiotic relationship of learning how to fuck one population over to the other. And not just those two, obviously, all of the colonies. Right. Oh, yeah. Which, you know, interestingly, like when we'll get into the film, like there's a scene where um, the, the population was aware of this during the War of Independence. Like, oh, they're doing the same shit to us that they did to the uh, the Boers. Yeah, the yeah. So, yeah. Like, <laughs> no, that's so interesting that they said that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so the second anecdote was Coogan speaking with a South Korean presidential advisor who was an ambassador to Washington, D.C., and the quote says, I commented on his impressive knowledge of the poet Yeats. This is Kukin speaking. And he told me that his initial interest in Irish culture had come about because the Japanese used English colonial practice in Ireland as a headline for their own policy in Korea, which is to say extirpation of native culture, systems of landholding, and inculcation of feelings of inferiority where things like language and traditional dress were concerned. Very interesting, right? To see like more modern forms of colonialism very explicitly modeled after these older forms of colonialism in different, completely different parts of the world. Oh, yeah. I mean, you reading the history and then like, you know, watching the film and stuff, you realize like, you know, if you have any kind of context for viewing like 
you know, in, in imperial in imperialism or, you know, like the, the manner in which uh, empires maintained um, in colonial states, like that a lot of this stuff is kind of the testing ground. And also like the birth into the 20th century, you know, that was like World War One and stuff. And England is like beginning to learn like, oh, okay, so this is a, you know, um, uh, what's a good way to put it? Uh, like, you know, uh, a colonial holding that's getting, you know, the native population is getting a little restless. Like, how do we subjugate it? And in a number of ways, like, it, it was like a rough, like, learning curve with Ireland because, like, they weren't able to account for, like, you know, the, um, the spread of technology and communication and stuff amongst people. But like, you know, they're, they're kind of learning from their mistakes during the war of independence or, you know, from the Easter uprising onward. And uh, yeah, it's, it's just, it's interesting to see like the, the seeds of a lot of uh, counterinsurgency insurgency tactics that we, you know, see employed later in the 20th century and up mm -hmm. till today, uh, taking root in in ireland during this period it's like really the the like first testing ground of it it's so freaking interesting in that regard <laughs> yeah <laughs> and it's like it's it's a little more difficult for him too because like you know like irish people i mean unless you're just like the most ginger motherfucker ever like <laughs> me when i was a kid um you know it's kind of hard to pick out a mick <laughs> which I, I can say it. I can say it. Yeah. But, <laughs> <laughs> That's our word. Uh, it's our word. Exactly. Uh, <laughs> you know, but like, uh, but, you know, for the most part, like, uh, you know, t telling a, an Irish person from like a British person's a little difficult. So, um, you know, yeah. It's, it's, yeah. It's even in Ireland, in certain places, like, you know, when we'll get to maybe one day, like the North, Northern Ireland conflict, like, it's not like, you can really tell most of the time. Yeah, but then again, that may be like our American, uh, you know, diaspora uh, <laughs> uh, lens of it, because like, I don't know, like I, I've talked, I, I've had friends um, from Ireland, uh, like mm -hmm. from Dublin, grew up there. And, uh, you know, like, I don't know, like the, I, apparently there's just these like very like minute differences that like English people can pick up on, or I don't know, like. Yeah, you know, like. It's, it's crazy. I, I don't know. <laughs> Do you? I forget. Have we talked about the Radio Warner? Um, I I don't think we have. I I'm only like somewhat familiar with them. Um, I've never really like listened to them full on. But gotcha. Yeah, it's. I mean, I'll probably cut it. But like, it's a good podcast, and you know, as far as it goes. But like, one of the guys was it's like, like a real it's like, um, paywalled, right? It's like pay only. Yeah, I think so. Okay, I think um, that's what's kind of kept me from it. But people have told me I should. I should. You know fork up the cash for it because it's worth it there's a lot of good stuff in the backlog um one of the guys was a real well he was irish american but he was a real like Ir irish weeaboo basically sure yeah <laughs> Ir irboo irboo <laughs> oh yeah um, new subculture yeah and uh so anyway he was i guess uh he was saying that like the accents you know you can pick up between the northern irish like between the Ulster and like the Irish Catholics, you know, like you said, oh, very true. slight differences. Yeah, yeah, accents makes makes sense to me. But like uh, the, the the couple of guys I knew, like who actually were from Ireland um, and from Belfast in particular, like they were saying like there's like 
facial features you can pick up i don't know crazy shit like that I'm like i don't oh, know really just like interesting yeah yeah if, if they're look if they've got <laughs> they, they all have bad teeth like <laughs> they're pale like you know whatever <laughs> jesus i'll probably cut that um hey you know whatever I'm... Yeah, well, <laughs> hey i'm calling it as an... okay yeah hey. <laughs> so in 1783 a Dublin parliament was set up for various complex reasons. But the long story short is that the Dublin parliament was a subject to the British House of Commons. This was basically to give Ireland some form of representation. It was The Dublin parliament in this era was mostly fangless, right? Mostly toothless, but like it still a- attempted to address various like economic concerns such as the fact like you pointed out the destruction of the irish woolen trade in favor of britain's uh edicts that forced irish merchants to sell their products to england i think exclusively uh and not you know it wouldn't ireland wasn't able to sell even to england's colonies for example uh the evils of absentee landlordism which was a very big problem and yeah. defense of Ireland was another major issue, right? Which, which just to uh, to because it all comes back to uh, you know, I don't know, just reminding me of um, uh, pension, and uh, it's all fabrics, you know, mm-hmm. it all comes back to the fabrics, the manufacturing of fabrics. <laughs> it is very interesting how prominent it appears. <laughs> yeah. Just throughout his novels and stuff. And yeah. Just, mm-hmm. it's, oh, he's, he picked up on something. Not for nothing did Marx, you know, start capital with fabric. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yep. Yep. So Irish Catholics and certain Protestants in this era, like specifically the Presbyterians, they began to organize in secret oath-bound societies. Like the biggest one was the United Irishmen. The goal of the United Irishmen was to unite all Irish into setting up an Irish Republic separate from England. Like, pretty freaking cool. Mm-hmm. And, like... Pretty based. Hey, God, you gotta hand it to him, man. Like, this is, like, an admirable goal, in my opinion. And I... You know I'm interested in secret societies. And, like... The Irish, ooh, they they use secret societies to great effect. This is a very important theme to which we will return at probably at several points. So in 1795, some skirmishes began again, and entirely related, the English and Ulster-like Protestants set up the Orange Society. So basically, they set up a rival secret society. The Orange Society soon became the Orange Order, and they would have their first demonstration in 1796. The Orange Order, of course, is still a powerful political and economic force in Northern Ireland. It plays an outsized role in the Troubles. And I don't know, Trash, if you heard, but uh, I guess Monty was telling me that the Orange Order is actually not so much now, but like going back several decades, they were actually a pretty big force in Canada as well. Oh, yeah. No, I've heard that 
a lot over the years. There's a lot of fucking orange men in Canada, um, from what I understand. Um, I think it actually, there's this film with like Harrison Ford and Brad Pitt, where Brad Pitt plays some like wild eyed, dreamy uh, IRA bomb thrower. Um, I don't know. <laughs> Canada, Canadian orange men play into it somehow in the plot. But that, uh, anyways, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. I, f- I forget if you were telling me that or someone was talking about that movie. Because, like, it astounds me once you really start looking how often Hollywood makes the most asinine usage of the IRA. Oh, yeah. And, like, downright, like, racist and just, like, super irresponsible and fucked up, like, storylines with the IRA. Oh, yeah. No, the way the way it popped, I feel like it was popping up a lot in the, in the 90s. In, you know, mm-hmm. and that famously is when 97, the Good Friday Agreement, happens and uh you know i i think it was just hollywood um you know well <laughs> here we go um you know maybe like uh in, in a lot of the ways that um ireland is kind of the testing ground of like counter insurrectionary um colonial tactics of like great britain um in the 90s like hollywood uh you know, psyop machine stuff is really ramping up, and they use the Irish as the testing subject. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. There's even a Jackie Chan movie where he fights the IRA. And, and this filthy fucking Irish. I gotta say, man, think about it. Jackie Chan's from Hong Kong, where there's British finance. Mm-hmm. Folks, it all connects. The 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 freaking Anglo's are funding this anti-Irish sentiment in film. Absolutely. And oh god, which <laughs> the the new films coming out about the plight of the uh, Ulster Protestants lately is something we can maybe get into. But <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. Oh, and then one more thing too. One of my favorite counter history, you know, like what if things, right? Like I know those were popular a couple of years ago, where it's like, oh, what if you know the obvious one is like what if the union lost the civil war what if the nazis won you know like yeah yeah but there's all kinds of interesting ones and my personal favorite is the very real plot that existed with wild bill donovan where (laughs) stupid irish americans were planning on invading canada and taking it over (laughs) (laughs) including wild bill donovan Oh wow! You so you're talking about that because like because yeah like I'm, later like, yeah the, yeah the Fenian uh, invasion or whatever that happened mm-hmm. um yeah back in the day but uh, but with Bill Don no it didn't yeah that would have been awesome I like talk about an interesting like uh, game game that out for a little bit <laughs> yeah <laughs> see what happens yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> so in 1796 Theobald Wolftone who was a Protestant but nevertheless, one of the fathers of Irish republicanism. Sickest name. Also, I think, mm-hmm. pops up in uh, Pynchon's uh, Against the Day, if I'm correct. Does he? Mm-hmm. Interesting. I'm going to have to or at least the go name look does. that up. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I but I'm sure it's like an illusion of it. Yeah. Yeah, it's an illusion. It's not the actual like historical character, but like, yeah, no, I'm I'm dead certain, actually, that Pynchon includes a, a wolf tone in, in Against the Day. So you recently read Against the Day? Yeah, well, during the pandemic, so it's been about 
okay. year and a half now, but I re- I reread all attention during the pandemic. Oh, hot damn. Yeah. I I think I read against the day a little bit bef- right before the pandemic hit. So we we're probably reading it around the same time ish. Oh yeah. Yeah. I, I, I first read it um I don't know, back in 2016 or something and then yeah i mean pandemic gave me a lot of time and i reread all attention which oh yeah fucking awesome (laughs) against the day is maybe hot take maybe my favorite pension yeah it's it's right up there it's like that or mason and dixon for me i couldn't i couldn't do something about it didn't work for me i might have to reread it you said that yeah, yeah, yeah. I just, I, I, the, the way I like to view Mason and Dixon, which is, I, I was reading somebody, is the antidote to gravity's rainbow of hmm. like, oh, everything is shitty and stuff and it's bad and there's all these secret society and you can't really control anything. But hey, you can have friends. <laughs> your friends are nice. I'm like, yeah, friends are nice. I fucking love my friends. Yeah. <laughs> and I will say, Anytime I read Pynchon and don't get something, I don't think it's him. I often will say, what do I not understand? Yes. Yeah, exactly. I mean, fuck. It's like, you know, I've read Gravity's Rainbow four or five times now, and I feel like I got to read it again just to get the fucking clue and some of the stuff. Yeah. Yeah. I've only read it. (laughs) I've read portions a bunch of times, but I've only read it one time, and I really need to. Okay, so Theobald Wolftone, 1796, a Protestant, yep. but nevertheless one of the fathers of Irish Republicanism, which many of the fathers of Irish Republicanism were actually Protestant. And that's something that Irish Catholics point out, is that they are not, it's truly not like a religious thing for Irish Catholics, right? Like, it's it's not that they're Protestant. <laughs> it's that they're evil no. fuckers. Yeah, it's not a doctrinal like difference that like leads to this bloodshed it's you know situational of yeah who is in power and what is their ethnic religious background well that you know like it's not a matter of like them disagreeing with luther's theses you know like it's it's not that (laughs) it's It's, british imperialism and the facts that the british use ethnic and religious differences in order to divide the population. That is, I think, yeah, anyway. So, Theobald Wolftone, he started making contacts in Paris to obtain arms and to start moving the the United Irishmen into a real conflict with the English. Serious systemic economic disenfranchisement was like the main driver of discontent, but a very real issue which, again, is itself kind of a systemic thing, was the literal, like, the quartering of British army soldiers in Irish homes. This was deeply resented and hated. And it's funny, Trash, right? Because, like, not for nothing does the U.S. Bill of Rights, does the U.S. Bill of Rights specifically mention the quartering of soldiers because people fucking hated it. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, I was going to say, um, you know, that's a foundational part of our government. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, um, it's like, yeah, maybe that's like a point of contention that is worth incorporating into the way you set up a state. Like, yeah. And it's the same fuckers. It's the same English army, British yeah. or whatever. Yeah. You know, 
They love fucking <laughs> crashing on your couch and eating all your fucking food. <laughs> go on home, British soldiers, go on home. Have you got no fucking homes out the road? For 800 years we fought you without fear. And we'll fight you for 800 more. And if you stay, British soldiers, if you stay. So in 1798, Irish Catholics rebelled, and the English general named Gerard Lake, his prescription in dealing with this problem was to take no prisoners, like literally. Estimates of civilian casualties in this conflict frequently list 50,000 killed, the vast majority being Irish Catholics. The rebellion caused Great Britain to prorogue the Dublin Parliament, which is to say, like, move it and take away what little power it had. And it got amalgamated into the British Parliament through the Act of Union of 1800. To do that, they actually did have to, like, push it through Parliament. 
through the Dublin Parliament too. Through the Dublin Parliament too. So the English had to bribe and intimidate Irish votes of the Dublin Parliament. The British Prime Minister, William Gladstone, said of this process, We obtained that union against the sense of every class of the community by wholesale bribery and unblushing intimidation. He also said, There is no blacker or fouler transaction in the history of man. We used the whole civil government of Ireland as an engine of wholesale corruption. So, like, even the British Prime Minister was like, yeah, this is pretty fucked up. Yeah. Which, and, you know, I think a point um, to to bring up, especially with, like, the, the quartering in homes, um, especially with, I feel like, the Irish probably more than the American colonies um, that this type of thing happened. It's, it's not just, like, Oh, uh, you got three British soldiers staying with you, so you you have well, they take up space on the floor, and you gotta make them your food. Like, ah, isn't this annoying? It's like, uh, no, 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 no. These are soldiers, um, who are also like poor British proletariat nobodies, and they've seen battle maybe, and they're fucked up. Like they've, you know, they've been through. They they have post-traumatic stress what you know whatever modern affixion you want it but like you know you, you get three men you know ranging ages from like 16 to 20 something and you know they're probably drunk all the time and god forbid you have a fucking daughter in your house mm-hmm. of age like or you know you're fucking like wife like and you they have to be in your home and you can't do anything about it like uh this is more than just like an unwelcome house guest who just stays too long it's like no this is uh this is occupation um and it's it's very it's very brutal and it's uncomfortable and it's uh yeah it's ugly and it's the same people who will kill fifty thousand if you fight back at all yeah yeah if you say anything if if you if you strike back when they're like going into your daughter's bedroom um you know you're gonna get shot and you're dead <laughs> you're gonna fucking kill you like that's it you know that's a good point thank you so consequently irish representation through this proroguing of the dublin parliament irish representation in the british parliamentary system was reduced by 80 percent so as a direct consequence economic devastation soon followed like the Irish economy was already over a barrel, as the saying goes, but like it got so much worse after this point. Absentee landlordism, which is to say British non Irish owners of vast swaths of Irish land who chose not to live in Ireland, caused all kinds of problems. And again, not to bring it back to the slave thing, but Absentee landlordism was a major component of slave plantations, too. No, again, I'm not saying it's the same. I'm not being flippant. But, like, it is the same class of people who were responsible for both different systems. Systems which were related. You know, the same relatively small 1% of, like, English rich you know, bastards who owned maybe land in Ireland 
you know, might have a plantation in the, you know, in the Bahamas. Like, this isn't like hypothetical. This is like, this is real history, right? Yeah. And, you know, like, I, I, I feel like, you know, I don't know what it is that necessarily prevented uh, the English from just doing that to the native Irish population, like the same system that they utilized uh, towards, you know, African people, you know, like they, uh, w whether it's like a cultural thing or something, or like it's the longevity of like the relationship between the two peoples um, or something like that. Like probably you know, like I, some mixture of like the relative, like, you know, relatively similar, like, you know, like not being black, like, yeah, they were I mean, like yeah. super racist, but like, you know, it's like maybe like internal opposition among the British population kept it from getting that bad or something. Yeah, yeah. I mean, just like the 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 length of time that like the two peoples had to like commingle and there was some familiarity with like Irish culture, although like you know, it wasn't as alien as African culture was. So like yeah. they they felt like they had to have at least some degree of decorum or maybe it was so close to the heart of the empire that like oh we can't be having like that you know horrid of you know extraction or you know methods yeah. of extraction of, of, of surplus value like this close to home it's an unseemly you know and there's always been like a there's always been a great tradition of british people being human yeah ranging from like lord byron to ken loach to jeremy corbyn for example you know like there's always been british people who viewed the irish as human which is you know heartening yeah i mean i i was i was amazed to learn that some protestants are human too. no i'm just kidding no. <laughs> uh, no no like like wolf tone no i mean like mm -hmm. uh yeah i don't know what it is um like what i you know it, it is an interesting question because like if it was just like purely brutal capital you know extracting value from whatever they could i mean yeah i don't know yeah it just took a different form it's very interesting mm -hmm. so to that end actually conditions varied across ireland so in different areas things were very different as James Joyce pointed out, it soon became possible for some Irish Catholics to achieve a relatively prosperous domicile by silence and cunning. But in the West and Northwest Ireland, Coogan points out that the position of Irish peasants was one of near helotry, which is a good way to put it, because, again, calling it slavery is just generally not helpful. But like ancient Greece, helots, serfs if you will pretty freaking close to the truth i mean it, i mean that's like an accurate term basically yeah so if the active union of 1800 politically disenfranchised irish catholics and caused economic to you know disenfranchisement one of the flip sides and a direct result of these actions was it caused the catholic church to grow in power mm -hmm. <laughs> The British crown always played a complicated game because they would basically, they would cut the Catholic Church in on the game of managing the Irish Catholic population in exchange for assistance in keeping this population docile. They were highly complicit 
at every stage, basically. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was just going to move on. So, I mean, if you had thoughts on the complicity of the Catholic Church. Oh, yeah. No, I mean, like, uh, you know, to a degree, um, it's uh, th- this weird, like, tenuous, like, relationship that, like, yeah, the British crown plays with the Vatican, wherein, like, here we have this population that, like, you control, like, physically, but, like, you know, we, we control their hearts. It's like the Vatican kind of playing this, like, strategic game of, like, well, like, we want to retain this you know, I, or, you know, territory essentially. Um, and like, and then how do we play with that without going into direct conflict with like Britain? Like, yeah, it's all very cynical, like jaded game <laughs> that yeah, the Vatican and, is playing. And then they keep some radical priests around. So if the winds of empire suddenly change, you know, they'll still have an in basically. You'll see that with like the troubles too. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, which is, you know, um, you know, and and this is the Catholic side of me speaking, not to say that there weren't like local priests um, that like, you know, would, would face very harsh like discipline and stuff for like, you know, following their conscience and like, mm-hmm. you know, helping the people and stuff like they're, you know, like the, the, the clergy like is capable of like independent thought, you know, obviously like the allusions you know, our lines can be drawn to like liberation theology and like South America yeah. and stuff. And, uh, you know, there are like, even to like, you know, Dorothy Day and like the Catholic worker, um, it's like a thing I was like a part of for a while. Um, nice. like, you know, there, there, there are like lines to be drawn there, but you know, no, for yeah. sure. <laughs> like as a general rule, the hierarchy and the organization tended to, you know, be very complicit. And then, actual priests on the ground you know frequently not always were maybe more sympathetic yeah yeah i mean they you know they're they're still human beings like and they saw what was going on yeah yeah uh let's see here so coogan says symbolically enough the year which saw the formation of both the united irishmen and the orange order also saw the opening of the great catholic seminary saint patrick's at maynooth county kildare the British allowed this substantial relaxation of the penal laws largely on the basis that it was cheaper to fund the professorships at this seminary than to pay the crown prosecutors. They got their value, they got value for their money with the natural conservatism of the church and its abhorrence of secret societies being continuously deployed against the Irish revolutionary forces. Those Catholics, they don't like secret societies, and it's always reactionary, basically. They, yep, yeah. <laughs> yep, <laughs> on the mark. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, you know, can, uh, oddly enough, Irish Catholics love secret societies. Love a good secret. <laughs> my, my best friend always talks about my dirty little Irish secrets I like to keep to myself. It's a, maybe it's a cultural <laughs> thing. I don't fucking know. But. Yeah. So Catholics would be emancipated like formally in 1829 and then tithe reform would come in 1837. For context, Irish Catholics were forced to tithe their income to a non-Catholic church. I think literally the Church of England or maybe it was called the Church of Ireland, you know, whatever, like the Anglo church, basically. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think think maybe it was the Church of Ireland is technically its name, but yeah. Yeah. 
And so this was basically a direct and onerous tax, which often went well above 10%. In some places, it reached up to 25%. Now, I think that's also separate from other taxes they were paying. Now, Irish secret societies were leading a tithe war against the tax collectors. <laughs> you know, I... I <laughs> I think Coogan goes into it, but I think at certain points they were just killing tax collectors. Oh, yeah. Yeah, Engels says like a little bit about that, too. Yeah. Hmm. <laughs> He's yeah. wind up in a dish. I don't know what happened. Who knows? <laughs> and ultimately, this caused British Parliament to do away with the tithe tax altogether and just acknowledge like, okay, these people are fucking Catholic. Like, it's fine. Yeah. <laughs> so Daniel O'Connell, who is a member of Parliament... British Parliament. He organized and fought for this Catholic emancipation. He also fought against the tithe tax. O'Connell was one of the most prominent members of Parliament to oppose the slave trade. So, you know, what's that term? Intersectionality of struggles and so forth. (laughs) (laughs) Very much related. Like, the same people who didn't give a shit about Irish people didn't give a shit about black people. The same people who did did right now Mm -hmm. o'connell had built up a non-violent civil rights organization called the catholic association not to demean gandhi in any way but just pointing out that there was this interesting non-violent civil rights movement separate from you know the later ones of course there are limits on what the catholic association was able to accomplish using exclusively moral force and non-violence and as always happens every generation a new organization came up called the young the young irelanders it consisted of people who were interested in o'connell's ideas but were more radical than o'connell and not as opposed to violence the young sorry the young irelanders i think were kind of, you know, getting caught up to a certain extent with the revolutions of 1848 and that general, like, continental revolution that was happening. Um, I was uh, I was just going to interject here. Um, mm-hmm. Engels had a great quote about um, O'Connell um, mm. that I've outlined, um, mainly talking about, like, his, his uh, you know, pacifist means. Um mm and what a failure they were um <laughs> and uh and he goes into the irish uh character at length and it's it's kind of a lengthy quote Hells um yeah. this is this is basically around the time that i imagined a lot of your stuff would so you can go off yeah for sure. yeah so so angles on on o'connell and uh you know the like he angles admired o'connell like and and what he was trying to do of course but he just uh disagreed in tactics um and so o'connell famously had about two hundred thousand uh men people you know uh behind him um and so engels says quote two hundred thousand men and what men people who have nothing to lose two two thirds of whom are clothed in rags genuine proletarians and sans culottes and moreover irishmen wild headstrong fanatical gales one who has never seen irishmen cannot know them 
Give me 200,000 Irishmen and I will overthrow the entire British monarchy. The Irishman is a carefree, cheerful, potato-eating child of nature. From his native heath where he grew up under a broken down roof on weak tea and meager food, he is suddenly thrown into our civilization. Hunger drives him to England. In the mechanical, ego- e- egoistic, ice-cold, hurly-burly of the English factory towns, his passions are aroused. What did this raw young fellow, whose youth was spent playing on moors and begging on the roadside, know of thrift? He squanders what he earns. Then he starves until the next payday or until he again finds work. He is accustomed to going hungry. Then he goes back, seeks out the members of his family on the road, where they had scattered in order to beg. From time to time, assembling again around the teapot, which is which the mother carries with her. But in England, the Irishman saw a great deal. He attended public meetings and workers' associations. He knows what repeal is and what Sir Robert Peel stands for. He quite certainly has often had fights with the police and could tell you a great deal about the heartlessness and disgraceful behavior of the Peelers, the police. He has also heard a lot about Daniel O'Connell. Now he once more returns to his old cottage with its bit of land for potatoes. The potatoes are ready for harvesting. He digs them up, and now he has something to live on during the winter. But here the principal tenant appears, demanding the rent. Good God, where is the money to come from? The principal tenant is responsible to the landowner landowner for the rent, and therefore has his property attached. The Irishman offers resistance and is thrown into goal. Finally, he is set free again, free again, and soon afterwards, the principal tenant or someone else who took part in the attachment of the property is found dead in a ditch. <laughs> Damn. Yeah. That's 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 very interesting. <laughs> yeah. See, okay, so Marx wrote that, right? Uh, Engels did. Okay, that makes sense, right? Because Engels, correct me if I'm wrong, but Engels was a little bit more interested in the Irish question. Oh, yeah, no, he he toured Ireland a number of, well, I mean, at least once. And he was, I mean, because he was in England. And so he was, you know, aware of like the Irish immigration and stuff that was happening into the factory towns, uh, you know, especially during the famine and everything. Um, So, yeah, he was very attuned and, I mean, he goes on more at length in that quote, uh, just about like the Irish character, and yeah, I mean, so, some of his language is, you know, maybe <laughs> the half savage upbringing and you know, stuff like this. <laughs> Perhaps a little bit idealizing, sure, but yeah, sure, yeah. He he also <laughs> liked the Irish woman, didn't he? Uh, wasn't that his oh, yeah. main mistress was a Irish lady? Well, I guess he yeah, married yeah, her at one no. point, didn't he? Uh no, I think they were just kind of considered common uh, sort of partners until she died or i think he got with her sister maybe i don't know something like that nice yeah i think you're right (laughs) yeah (laughs) interesting let's see here so political and economic disenfranchisement and the rise in absentee landlordism and related problems which is to say british oppression in general led directly to the Great Potato Famine of 1845 to 1852. I mean, it was sort of like a series of famines, right? Like, mm-hmm. Now, what's interesting is that there were other serious famines which prior to the Great Potato Famine, which meant that the Great Potato Famine was clearly foreseeable because of the prior famines. So Coogan wrote... In all, the famine years consigned some one million people to the grave, a further million to emigration, 
and probably condemned a further million to a half-life of poverty and near starvation. But this swelling tide of human misery carried with it, to America in particular, a lasting characteristic of anti-British feeling that forms part of the tradition of continuing support for physical force, which, to a degree, continues to assist the IRA today. Some of my Irish family came over in this period. Uh, some came over later. And I'm sure many of my listeners from America might have ancestors from this period of immigration as well. Tickets and a lottery Postcards 
Yeah, well, I mean, um, you know, one of the things that I read is that um, I think it was 1846 or 47, but right at the start of the, the potato blight, um, Irish immigration accounted for half of all immigration to America at the time. Mm. So, you know, when you when you get the thing of, um, you know, everybody in America is a little Irish, you know, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> um, it is it is from this influx of of immigration that happened uh in the 18 1846 onwards during the famine and um yeah i mean just like kind of like an interesting thing um that uh you know personal anecdote maybe um that like you know continues on to this day of like irish uh american you know supporting the ira and stuff like um so my my dad who is mostly not Irish, mostly Norwegian, which is kind of ironic considering Viking invasion of Ireland. <laughs> Anyways, uh, <laughs> um, you know, when he was first dating my mom, he went to this, uh, you know, Irish bar in, in St. Paul, Minnesota, um, which nice. St. Paul, for, for those who don't know, is, is like, you know, uh, St. Paul, it's, it's, it's very Irish Catholic town. Um, probably. Isn't it the more working class compared to Minneapolis? Yeah, yeah, it's it's quieter. It's more. It's it's a lot prettier. It's actually got a lot of an East Coast feel. If you ever been to like Boston or Philly, um, mm. the streets kind of like wind in this incoherent, drunken Irish way. Um, <laughs> <laughs> blocks don't make any fucking sense. Uh, but anyway, and and there's a lot of Catholic churches, and it's a very pretty town. Anyways, um, and there's a lot of Irish bars, pubs, or whatever. Um, and my dad, this would have been in the '80s. Um, you know, went there with my mom and a bunch of my Mick uncles and uh there, there's this guy who showed up and was asking for donations for uh you know irish orphans in in dublin and stuff and he was passing <laughs> around a hat and stuff and my dad just being a nice you know minnesota farm boy was just like oh yeah sure you know about the you know oh yeah you and, betcha yeah yep and, and then one of my uncles just grabbed him by his arms like that's going to fucking car bombs to blow up kids <laughs> And he stops him, and my dad's just like, "Jesus fucking Christ, what did I get myself into? <laughs> the fuck is this?" Like, so was the uncle telling him not to donate because of that? Yeah, yeah, the uncle was, not, you know, yeah, the uncle was like a thoroughly like, you know, just like Americanized, like, like fed. A lot of my family, you know, is just kind of like, uh yeah, I mean, we support Ireland, but like, uh, you know, we don't support car bombs and stuff like that, and you know, just kind of like." feeds into the propaganda you know i don't know they're normal people you know they, they watch the news and shit so yeah whatever for sure there's a lot of well i mean we'll probably get to this at some other point but like a lot of information warfare going on with oh yeah the troubles but again uh a lot of the start of it <laughs> yeah you know exactly yeah <laughs> that's very interesting though <laughs> yeah no, it's <was> fun story. <laughs> yeah yeah let's see here <clears throat> So another group that came directly out of the famine was the Irish Republican Brotherhood, also known as the Fenian Movement. It was founded in 1858, and it spread throughout the United States. Uh, I mean, it was in Ireland and the United States, I should say. Coogan points out that as was the United Irishmen, which was its direct, you know, organizational ancestor, the Fenian movement, the Irish Republican Brotherhood, was an oath-bound secret society which had revolutionary objectives which were anathema to the Catholic Church, 
as well as to the British. And you can find all kinds of quotes from Catholic bishops from almost any era castigating the Fenians. <laughs> now, you know, after the famine, there was this Irish Renaissance led by like initially Irish Protestants and like middle class Irishmen and women, of course. And this included, you know, Yeats and his whole literary clique. Only later would Irish Catholics achieve similar fame in like literature and so forth. James Joyce being, of course, the heavy hitter and and on and on. And famously, uh, you know, did not give a shite about <laughs> like Irish independence or nationalism. Want nothing wanted nothing to do with it, you know. Interesting. Like I didn't living even in... think to think about that. Oh yeah, no, like Joyce, I mean, he I think because I read a biography of him uh a year or two ago um and yeah he really wanted nothing to do with with ireland at all and which is just i get it on a personal level like <laughs> just not wanting anything to do with any of that shit that your family's going through or anything and like just wanting to just live in another city be away from all that bullshit like and yeah i, I think famously like he only returned to ireland once or twice after leaving as a very young man and like you know moving to paris and or well zurich and then paris or whatever um yeah did not i mean was sympathetic towards it obviously if you read portrait of the artist you know and his yeah depiction of like parnell and stuff obviously he's, he's a mccat like he cares but like he just was like not concerned at all with that yeah, I remember reading, what was it, uh, Dubliners, and just, like, I was, like, I don't know, in my teens, and just being, like, I don't know what the fuck they're talking about, because I don't know anything about Irish history. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah, no, I, I also read Dubliners as a teen, because uh, it was the one I could understand <laughs> as a teenager, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, um, and, well, not that I understand uh, Finnegan's or anything nowadays, but anyways, uh, yeah. you know, like, I definitely got the, like, I don't know. I, I feel a very kindred spirit with, like, Joyce just in terms of, like, how you relate to your family and stuff and all the yeah. bullshit and everything. I'll cut this part, but... Uh, mm -hmm. And the whole thing about, like, oh, I don't want to think about the country that we came from because it's fucking depressing and you can't do anything about it it's like okay yeah, yeah. I, I get that because uh similar dynamic yeah oh yeah yeah i mean yeah it's, it's, yeah similar in spirit probably not not as immediate mm -hmm. you know in in my sense but like yeah absolutely it's totally <laughs> it's depressing okay yeah so what's interesting and you pointed this out that uh the english like curbed and curb stomped irish the irish economy What's interesting is that Northern Ireland developed differently from the rest of Ireland for various reasons, not least of which because there were big plantations owned by Protestant Ulster psychopaths. Mm -hmm. uh, and then also, you know, I'm interested in heavy industry. The <sighs> Pretty much the only heavy industry in Ireland was in Northern Ireland, mm -hmm. which is interesting. And Famously on, made the DeLorean 
and had separate entrances for Protestants and Catholics in the 80s. Really? I didn't know that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that's true. Yeah. The DeLorean was manufactured in Northern Ireland. Separate entrances. That just adds to the like weirdness about the DeLorean. Huh. DeLorean has a weird sus history. There, there's a I mean, honestly, I, I got my info from listening to a dollop on it, um, mm-hmm. to be honest. But uh yeah, it's it's, it's, it's a, that's a good episode. It's worth yeah. checking out. <laughs> so let's see here. So on top of that, although this wasn't the case in prior eras of Irish history by this period which is the turn of the century into you know 1790s into the uh 1800s the various irish protestants finally closed ranks unified united i guess not literally in terms of religion but like politically Mm -hmm. after the 1798 rebellion and they would henceforth generally always act as a mostly unified group against irish catholics Winston Churchill is generally credited with being the first politician to play the orange card on the like British national stage in order to achieve English electoral advancement, which is very interesting because it kind of makes Nixon's Southern strategy sort of makes like, it's sort of like an interesting historical echo of that, I guess is what I would say. Just like playing to the bigotry. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. No, absolutely, yeah. Mm-hmm. The 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 base uh, concerns of man, like like what differentiates you from the other, like they're coming to get yours. Yeah, like, playing off the worst impulses of people, basically, and mm-hmm. yeah. Um. Also, I'll tell a little anecdote. I know I don't typically talk that much about. Well, I I mentioned a fair amount that I was a Mormon missionary, but I don't talk about it that often right yeah unsurprisingly there are not a lot of irish there are not a lot of irish mormons either in ireland (laughs) or (laughs) in america for some reason (laughs) i think that i think this makes intuitive sense but i would be hard pressed to explain all the reasons right i mean I, i i think i could but like whatever so the point is there aren't very many There's a lot of like, you know, maybe half or, you know, quarter Irish or whatever, like me, right? Like, but not like full Irish, right? Not very many. On my mission, I was serving with a guy who was pretty much as Irish as it gets in the United States. And he got so mad at me (laughs) when I said something nice about Winston Churchill and it completely caught me off guard i had no idea what he was talking about and (laughs) in retrospect i now understand that it's because he knew about you know what the fuck churchill did to ireland and i had no idea (laughs) he's like oh what a great statesman we beat nazis isn't that great like you know yeah just being a young kid like oh yeah it's wonderful yeah he got so mad (laughs) and like i gotta say you know, I'm not in contact with him anymore, but I would apologize because, gotta say, he was right in that instance. Like, fuck Churchill. Oh, yeah. I mean, absolutely. <laughs> Fucking goddamn. Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I maybe would have been guilty of that at a younger age, too, you know, because mm-hmm. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm an American, like, you know, just what I am, but like, 
I, I happen to have this cultural lineage, but it's not like my family was like instilling IRA propaganda into my skull from a young age or anything. Exactly. Yeah, so. And people might forget now, but there was a certain point a couple years ago when Epic Bacon, Epic Bacon, Winston Churchill, you know, being epic memes and like generally like there was a period where Winston Churchill was held up as like a real cool dude. And then I feel like maybe partially, you know, which parts of the internet I got more into, I feel like now there's more of an awareness maybe, or maybe this is just where I am in the internet that he's like a fucked up dude. But like there was a point in time when I think it was very popular to just be like uncritically way into Winston Churchill in like the early aughts and so forth. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. This is where you fall down the internet rabbit hole of like the people who do hold them up nowadays are probably some kind of weird, you know, pro British colonial, like Western, you know what I mean? Like, mm -hmm. uh, and you know, the people who are against them are like people like us, I guess, or, you know, I don't fucking know. Like, and just normal people are like, ah, yeah, history guy, FDR, no <laughs> Nazis, cool. Churchill, Good Stalin, time. FDR. I remember. Yeah. Yeah. I went to school or something. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So what's interesting, right, about Churchill's orange card strategy is that he was backed by some very interesting people, Trash. Do you want to hear which people backed his orange card play? Probably some really awesome <laughs> chill guys. <laughs> It included all the best people, such as Waldorf Astor, Lord Rothschild, Lord Milner, Lord Ivy, Sir Elgar, and the Duke of Bedford. And then Moloch, right? <laughs> Don't get me started on each and every one of these people <laughs> I just mentioned. Oh, There's wait. a big fucking owl, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> wait a minute. Isn't this basically the same group of people that also were uh, pro-Nazi, by the way? Oh, it's probably yeah. unrelated. No, wait, yeah, don't think about it. <laughs> don't do that. Keep moving. All right. So, in this era, home rule became the term, right? The Irish wanted home rule, which for some meant independence, and for some meant... You know, basically just a return to the Dublin Parliament, which would be, you know, still subordinated to Great Britain, but which would have allowed them for like to even act like normal members of Great Britain, basically. And what's really interesting is that even a return of the Dublin Parliament was fought tooth and nail by the Ulster Protestants. They did not want that because it would have been a reduction in their importance. Now, in 1912, I know, good lord, we haven't even started on this freaking movie yet. I I <laughs> 1912, nearly half a million Ulster Protestants, they signed a thing known as Ulster's Solemn League and Covenant. This was a bizarre, quasi-religious thing that they all signed against a home rule bill that was coming up in British Parliament. And I'll read from a... I'll read that covenant that half a million of them signed. Being convinced in our consciences that home rule would be disastrous to the material well-being of Ulster, as well as to the whole of Ireland, subversive of our civil and religious freedom, destructive of our citizenship, and perilous to the, 
to the unity of the empire. We, whose names are underwritten, men of Ulster, loyal subjects of his gracious majesty, King George V, hereby pledge ourselves in solemn covenant throughout this our time of threatened calamity to stand by one another in defending for ourselves and our children our cherished position of equal citizenship in the United Kingdom, and in using all means which may be found necessary to defeat the present conspiracy to set up a home rule parliament in Ireland, and in the event of such a parliament being forced upon us, we further solemnly and mutually pledge ourselves to refuse to recognize its authority. In sure confidence that God will defend the right, we hereto subscribe our names. I'm telling you, man, these people are freaking nuts. <laughs> yeah. And it's so funny, right? Because like Great Britain in general tends to view Ulster Protestants as like absolute weirdos. Like a normal person thinks these people are crazy. Like half a million people completely without provocation, like swore allegiance to the king. Nobody was asking them to do that. No. I mean, yeah, it's just this. It's like, yeah, I don't even know. Like, if, if you're just like a normal, like, fucking dude in London, like, no connection to any of this, and you're like, I don't know, there's all these guys, backwater weirdos on this island that are like super on, I don't know, it's just awkward. It's just like some guy at a party, like, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm on your fucking side, man. Like, all right, I, I, yeah, I don't fucking know. Like, like, well, I mean, and then that would get into like what, you know, Marx and Engels like talked about like how the Irish proletariat would like influence like the English one. I don't know. It's yeah, yeah. Maybe later, but <laughs> we need to do a Jaysakai settlers, but for the Northern Irish Protestants. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Yes. <laughs> Supposedly, some of these guys even signed their names in blood, although it's kind of debated whether that's like literally true. But it was definitely a rumor floating around. Yeah, I mean, you know, there, yeah, there's something to be said, maybe, I don't know, like, uh, uh, very, uh, like, <laughs> just the, uh, the level of um, enthusiasm that, like, the Anglo-Irish, uh, you know, proles uh, exhibit for, like, their own, you know, culture, like, like, like the way that is uh, cultivated by, like, characters like Churchill and stuff of, like, this, like, yeah. fierce, like cultural identity like that you defend like with your fucking life like you know i don't know like yeah it's very you know very like rhodesian or something <laughs> yeah 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 very yeah similar yeah yeah uh let's see here so i guess the ulster covenant was like consciously modeled after some specific incident during the english civil war and then i guess south africa during apartheid had more than one similar covenant situation that happened just like these people are all over the British empire, basically. Yep. So absolute fucking psychopaths. Psychopaths. Yeah. So, and unfortunately I gotta say James Elroy, my, one of my favorite authors of all time, Anglo Irish, <laughs> he's Irish Protestant. Yeah. I mean, you know, Beckett too you know so hmm, interesting i didn't yeah i didn't realize but i'm not surprised yeah no i mean yeah it's it's weird because you know he's like fucking joyce's like understudy or whatever but 
Yeah, I mean, I don't know. Malone dies fucking great, so whatever. Mm-hmm. So and he's obviously not like ultra like UVF like kind of military <laughs> dude. He's, he's just a dude writing books. So whatever. yeah, interesting. So Easter nineteen sixteen, we're getting close. <laughs> <laughs> so close to the film. Irish Republicans launch an armed insurrection in order to establish an independent Irish Republic. Not just home rule. They went further than what the population actually wanted. And this is an interesting example of like a vanguard, right? Sort of like pushing the issue well past what, you know, the population wanted, but like really shifting, I guess, the Overton window or something like that. Like, but for the listeners, I'll explain the context first. So this was during World War One, right? Great Britain was heavily overextended. And this is when the Irish Republicans launch an armed insurrection, which is very funny, uh, except that it didn't work, basically, in a yeah. certain sense. <clears throat> well, and yeah, it's... Yeah. Go on. I, I, have, I have thoughts. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Okay. So the Easter Rebellion was launched by Patrick Pierce, who was a schoolmaster and Irish language activist, as well as James Connolly, a bunch of other leaders, including a sizable contingent from the Irish Women's Council. And they seized various buildings in Dublin and proclaimed an Irish Republic. The British, the British Army came in and crushed the rebellion. There was major fighting over six days. Upon surrendering, the Irish combatants were sent to internment camps. Notable, right? Because the British kind of invented concentration camps, used Mm -hmm. them in a bunch of contexts. The Irish were just one of those. Most of the leaders were executed. Yeah, and and actually in the the film, uh, the character Dan uh, mentions that uh, he's like, don't tell the bastards, but that's where I learned to read and write. (laughs) <laughs> yeah and uh that character he uh got to meet Connolly, right yep yeah which Connolly again is like a huge figure and he i don't know he probably shouldn't have fucking been there mm. you know on the ground like because everything without Connolly just goes to shit yeah essentially well it's interesting right because they were deadly serious, but on the flip side, they knew that this was probably not going to work. Well, and but so, yeah, yeah. Go oh, ahead. sorry. I, I, I just, um, yeah, just to add on, I like for, from what I was reading, um, from what they understood, because, uh, so Connolly was the Irish, uh, civilian army, yeah, and then the the, the, the source I was reading um, from a Marxist journal uh, was that the Irish volunteers were more the uh, petite bourgeois mm. backed side, and they had a lot more than Connolly's uh, volunteers in, in terms of troops. And they did not back the Easter uprising. So essentially, it just left Connolly and this uh, vanguard, and, it, and it, they had thought going in that they would have the volunteers on their on their back but as we'll see with like the development of the film the petite bourgeois were not 
too stoked on a uh, Socialist Republic of Ireland. Um, they were very excited about a free state where they controlled, you know, tariffs and economic policy and not so much complete independence from Britain, you know, uh, which like pops up like again and again in the film. So, exactly. yeah. <laughs> no, it's interesting, right? Because I read this book and I'll mention it probably a few times, but uh, this book, Guerrilla Days in Ireland, which I actually have a theory that the, uh, the wind that shakes the barley had to have been heavily and directly inspired by it because so many of the details in so much of it, I mean, I'm not saying like, it's like bad, like they were drawing on probably a bunch of texts and so forth, but like, mm -hmm. so this guy, he was an IRA commander during the uh, Irish war of independence. And when so he basically describes the Easter uprising as a blood sacrifice to jumpstart a national reawakening. Because yeah. basically they were deadly serious. They were trying to win, but they knew it probably wouldn't work. But the flip side is that it did cause a national reawakening where it made people realize like home rule is not what we should be. That's not what, you know, when you're negotiating, you don't start by saying, I want home rule from Britain. You start by saying, like, fuck you, full Irish socialist republic. And then when you don't get that, you know, at least you're bargaining high. And then you, you know, end up getting less than what you want, right? I mean. Yeah. I just, you know, like, in, in my estimation, the, the sacrifice of, of Connolly was, like, basically ireland giving up their lenin mm. and i mean obviously i think Connolly was not as uh prolific of a writer as as lenin was um but like as a you know a figure had or a leader of the movement like they really could have fucking used Connolly, like yeah going forward and and his death i i think is just an absolute tragedy and it really colors the rest of yeah exactly yeah now i wanted to run this past you and i don't mean it in a flippant way but the easter uprising in some ways reminds me of various japanese ultranationalist attacks and rebellions mm. not on a moral sense not in a moral <laughs> sense yeah, but sure. in the sense of like you just you tr you just throw yourself into the buzzsaw in order to push society in a certain direction. Mm -hmm. Like there is that sort of like, just like uh, almost kamikaze sort of like approach. And uh, the difference of course, is that the ultra nationalists were pushing society into a much darker, more violent direction. And then, you know, these were people fighting for independence. So completely different on a moral level, but. Yeah, I mean, you know, I think they were people who just sort of weighed their options, you know, mm -hmm. of like, uh, well, who knows when we're going to have another fucking famine again, like, to the degree that, the you know, potato famine, like, and we lose half of everybody, you know, and yeah. like, and, and, and you get, you know, like, 
you know, just go, like Mark's like quotes, uh, like, you know, not, not just families, but like uh, villages, like pooling together their funds to send the healthy children to America on their own at like very young, pre-puberty, you know, like, well, this is the ones of our lions who will make it. And if they stay here, they're going to starve to death. So maybe they'll survive in America. Maybe. Who, who fucking knows? Like, so it's between that and uh, maybe you die, but your family, like, you know, like, these are like, this is what these people were presented with in a very, mm-hmm. like, real, concrete way. Like, and I don't know if you were in their shoes, like, what, what would you do? You know, like, you know, fuck it. Like, I'm either going to die like under a black, well, uh, black and tans weren't there yet, but you know, I'm either mm-hmm. going to die like under a British boot, like get my head smashed in, or I'm going to die of starvation or, you know, like I'm going to watch like my entire lineage die out. Like what would you do? So like, yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know? it is interesting, right? Cause like, you know, people talk about, for instance, like the Haitian rebellion or, you know, like the Haitian revolution or, you know, slave revolts or so forth. And like, mm-hmm. again, not to be flippant, but it's like fighting back is in it, in and of itself, like important for a group to regain their dignity and, you know, to view themselves not as inferiors and so forth. Yeah, absolutely. Like, um, which, yeah, it's, it's kind of a weird thing, I guess, you get into with looking at these conflicts and, you know, like, is sacrifice on this level, like, is your death worth it? Like, I mean, like, with the hope that, like, just the hope that it inspired, if that's all you're left with, though, is, like, just the hope that maybe if I fucking die, like, fighting this, that my family, somebody in my family or my village will, like, carry this onward like mm-hmm. you know i don't know that's that but you know it, it's hard to imagine like in our comfortable position now but like that's honestly where the irish people were left at so exactly Strong men came hurrying through 
My Britannia comes with the great big guns sailing to the foggy June. The night fell black and the rifles cracked Made perfidious, I'll be unreal Mid the laden wain, seven tongues of flame Did shine o'er the lines of steel By each shining blade a prayer was said That to Ireland the songs be true When the morning broke still the war flag shook out its fold in the foggy dew. Was England bade our wild geese go that small nations might be free? But their lonely graves are big civilized waves on the fringe of the great North Sea. Oh, had they died by Pierce's side or fought with Cabra? Their names we would keep where the Fenians sleep in the shroud of the foggy dew. Oh, the bravest bell and the requiem bell by mournfully In the springtime of the year Oh, while the world did gaze With deep amaze At those fearless men but few Who bore their fight That the freedom's light Might shine through the foggy dew Back through the glen I rode again My heart with beat was sore For I parted with those gallant men Whom I'll never see no more But to and fro in my dreams I go And I kneel and I pray for you For slavery fled Oh, glorious day When you fell in the foggy dew